She sensed the ever-knowing voice of her guiding esprit, a voice she'd first heard when she was six. That voice had guided Marie well in the twenty-five years since. Her esprit had led her from New Orleans to Daytona to San Francisco to Sacagawea, this riverfront town hidden in the Washington woodlands. As a girl, Marie had named her esprit Fleurette, because that was her grand-mère's name, and therefore must contain some of her wisdom, she decided. And Fleurette was a wise one indeed. Fleurette did not want Marie to open the door. Her burning ears told her so. Who's there? John called out in a big barking voice that stopped the ruckus cold. That you, Red John? A reedy man's voice came back through the door. Marie recognized Sheriff Kerr's voice, though he sounded unusually nervous and winded. The sheriff was neither friend nor protector to them, despite his tin star. Sheriff Kerr's rifle had fired most of the buckshot that had ruined their door, she was certain. Red John! You open this door. On my word, there's no shenanigans. We've got a sick child out here, and folks tell me your colored gal has some nurse training. They're saying she saved livestock hurt within an inch of their lives after the slide. God knows we need her now. John glanced back at Marie, who had risen to her feet without realizing it. Her ears still burned, but Florette's voice was lost beneath the sudden concerned beating of her heart. Who seek? she said, but John waved to shush her. The woman you call my colored gal. She has a name. Speak of her proper, John said to the closed door, unmoved. God damn it, Red John, the sheriff said, sounding more like his old self. We've compromises to saint. Is that what she wants to be called, yonly engine? She can call herself King George of England for all I care. I don't like this any more than you do. But Hal's girl needs doctoring in a hurry, and we've got to put the past aside. I can't fathom any God-fearing woman who'd nurse pigs and goats at this house and not people. Would you have this girl die here on your stoop? Open this door before we break it down. I mean it, Red John. Please, Red John. Another voice came through. Hal Booth's, a sick child's father. Do it, John, Marie said and only then did her husband unbolt the two locks. He did it on her word, not on the sheriff's or Hal Booth's. John made his position clear by the look he gave Marie with a stab of his deeply set brown eyes. Five people tumbled into the house with a stench of fear and summer perspiration, tracking red brick dust from the front porch into the foyer, onto the front rug already muddied beyond repair by the refugees who had crowded here the night of the slide. All of the arrivals were men except for Maddie Booth, who was sixteen, twice as old as Dominique. Maddie was limp in her father's arms. Maddie was a small-boned girl, but she weighed more than a hundred pounds, surely, so they must have suffered quite a climb up the twenty-one stone steps that led to Marie's house from the road below. The steps were steeply set apart. Marie wouldn't have recognized Maddie except that they had named her, because her appearance was so changed. Her waxen blonde hair was usually neatly braided, but today it was a hive of straw atop her head, matted and untamed. And her eyes! Marie could see only the rims of Maddie's gray irises, which were rolled up unnaturally high. The rest was just pink and bleary, sightless. 
Saliva streamed from the girl's mouth, dampening her rumpled dress and a large V across her breast. At the instant her dangling feet touched the red dust on the floor, the girl suddenly shuddered like someone who'd felt the lash of a horsewhip. It looked exactly like an epileptic's convulsive seizure, Marie thought. She had studied epilepsy at the Mary McLeod Hospital and Training School for Nurses in Florida, so she knew a few things about the brain disorder that would be a great help if Maddie's ailment were what it appeared to be. But that was not so. Whatever was troubling this girl might look like epilepsy, but surely it was not. Florette's warning rose to a screech in Marie's head, as if trying to split her skull in two. Never, never had Florette carried on so. That was how Marie came to the terrible realization, although she'd suspected the truth from the mere sight of Maddie, especially after the girl's resistance to the red brick dust Marie had ground and freshened every morning to protect the house since the mudslide. To see how the girl's legs had jerked away. Marie had heard of such cases from Gromeo, but she had never seen one this pronounced with her own eyes. And then there was the smell. Maddie Booth stank. Papa, Marie said, mute except for that word. She stopped in her tracks. What name was there for this? Abaca had been brought to her house in a flesh disguise. She's had a fit, Maddie's father said, his blue eyes imploring. She's never before been sickly, not like this, but it started yesterday morning. Said her stomach was ailing her. Then this morning she was out of her mind talking senseless. Her skin's burning up one minute, cold as a block of ice the next. And her breathing. Yes, Marie could hear Maddie's breathing. The girl's chest heaved with her labored breaths, and the sound was like choked gurgling from a deep well. Unnatural. The intervals between her breaths were horrible in their length, nearly interminable. This girl was dying. John's lean, rigid form stood tall over the other men, and Marie saw his eyes. He knew the truth, too. The lines of his jaw grew sharper as he locked his teeth. Help her, Mrs. Toussaint, Hal Booth said, thrusting Maddie toward her like a sack of flour. Please do something. She's our only girl, our baby. If something happens to her... Marie wiped her hands on the dust cloth she always carried in her apron pocket not because her hands were dirty, but because her hands needed something to do. She must think. Lay her down on the sofa in the parlor. Keep her head propped up so she's not choking. Watch her close, Marie said. Wait for me. Those sure-spoken words might as well have been someone else's, because Marie was not at all sure. Her hands felt like frail corn shucks drained of blood. Until now, today had been an ordinary day, she realized. She'd been about to soak her green beans and begin drying her herbs like any other weekday. She'd had no telling dreams, no whispers from Florette to shake her from her sleep. The only odd thing about today had been John coming home from his logging camp twenty miles down the road because his back was hurting him. But even that wasn't so odd because his back hurt from time to time when he forgot to drink his tea. She'd never taken John's backaches to signify anything special, and she'd been glad for his unexpected company. Yet here she was, facing this thing, and in her own home. Where had her warning been? Then she remembered one of the first lessons Gromère had taught her, 
there is a cost for all things, one mirroring the size of the other. Marie could hardly say that she hadn't known to expect it. She had brought it here herself, as surely as she'd called it. Florette was in a frenzy in Marie's head. Marie's ears burned so badly now, she wished she could pull them clean off and be done with the pain. If she could heed Florette's soundless voice, she would run all of these intruders back out where they'd come from, even if it was at gunpoint. Then she'd be wise to begin lighting candles right away, if it wasn't too late already. As she turned toward the stairs, Marie began whispering prayers she had never uttered. Marie, John said, taking long strides to follow her. A girl so young, Marie muttered, and her hands trembled. She could still smell Maddie even here at the staircase, and the stench nearly turned her stomach. If any of the rest of them had the ability to smell it as she did, they would not be able to bring themselves to touch that child, she thought. She wondered how she could touch Maddie herself when the time came. C'est tragique, John. C'est sinistre. This is not your fight. John had never been a whisperer and Marie was sure everyone in the house heard him when he spoke, his low-pitched voice bouncing across the walls. He followed her as she took the wooden stairs two at a time. Help me find a blanket. We'll need an armload. What if that were Dominique? What if it was, John said, and for the first time she heard something in his voice that was not born of their bitter time in Sacagawea. He took her shoulders and roughly turned her around, forcing her to look at his face, which was nearly hidden in the long, loose strands of his jet-black hair. But his eyes were not hidden. John's eyes spoke his heart.